Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And uh, just a very quick recap as to where we are so far. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to the apostles, how they were witnesses unto him. Not the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, but the true witnesses. Also from chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Ghost came to save them, the apostles, and you and I. And to give them power, and you and I. Boldness to preach, and you and I, and to live. So there are many aspects to the word of God which... First of all, it was in reference to the apostles, and secondly, in reference to us. Also from chapter 1, 15 and 22, the apostle Peter is still very much following an almost John the Baptist style of preaching. An almost uh, identical form of preaching, a formula of salvation. Which goes back to my understanding that uh, Peter is still uh, following John. But not only that, Peter hasn't yet been given the gospel of the grace of God, which was revealed to Paul, of course. Also, my reading of the, la- of the last uh, several chapters demonstrates to me that the Jews had to acknowledge, first of all, that they were responsible for their Messiah's death in order to be saved. But for us living today, we don't have to acknowledge our involvement in the Messiah's death because he wasn't our Messiah until we were born again. So the Jews have to accept they have put him to death in order to be saved. So it's a slight difference between how they got saved to how you and I got saved. Also, the early church, as I say, were Jewish, and the last church will be Jewish. And on top of that, the early church met in homes, and I believe the last church on the earth before the second coming of Christ will be meeting in homes as well. I think the church system, as we see it around the world, is pretty much dead and buried. But anyway, let's move on, please, to Acts chapter 4. Let's start, if we may, in verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved, that they taught the people and preached through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. There they are, organized religion, the captain of the temple, the priests and the Sadducees, an unholy trinity, came upon them, being the apostles, of course. They were grieved that they preached through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. That's an interesting expression, through Jesus. We know that when we are born again, we are baptized into the body of Christ. We know that the trinity of God lives within us. But here, they're going to preach through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead and I'll say this that once you're saved outside of your flesh the devil and the world your number one enemy is going to be organized religion and last time we ended in chapter three on an almost cliffhanger with this uh, man who was crippled being healed and there's a great commotion and organized religion steps in and almost thwarts another Pentecost they almost thwart this great event turning from a healing into salvation because they organized religion are threatened They are threatened by the true Bible-believing Christian. And we see it every day of the week in our town. We see uh, these chaplains going through our town. And these chaplains, we think, are part of the Methodist and the uh, Pentecostal church system. And they walk straight past us as if we are invisible. And yet, rather interestingly, they will go and talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses. But they won't give Patrick or I the time of day. But here, these priests and Sadducees and captains of the temple knew the apostles... And they're going to try and put it down as quick as they can because they know that if people turn to the Lord, they're going to abandon Judaism, which isn't technically the case. The Lord came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it in the sense of completely destroying it. He came to fulfill it, to complete it. But of course, if the people of Israel turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and in their mind anyway, abandon the temple, that's going to put them out of business. Hence why you find in John chapter 11, this conspiracy amongst the Jewish leaders to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. Verse 3, please. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold 
unto the next day, for it was now even tide. Prison. If you stand for Lord Jesus Christ, the state is going to come against you. Outside of the flesh and the devil and the world, organised religion is going to come at you, whether it's secular or religious. And I made the case last time that the apostles went out in twos to preach, to heal, and now they're going to be detained in twos. It's going to cost you something to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in a, we live in a generation now, especially in the West, that if we stand on a street corner and preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we risk being detained and put into jail. Also, this uh, reference in verse 3 to laying hands on them, as I say, in reference to putting them into jail, I'm not sure if this prison or jail or detention centre was from the temple or within the temple, or if it was in reference to the detention centres which the Romans would have had uh, access to. I'm not sure. Somebody once said that when they read through the Old Testament very carefully, they couldn't find any prison or any jails, which is quite interesting because if you go back to the Old Testament, it seems to me that if the people of Israel followed the Lord, if they loved him, if they served him, they wouldn't need to be put into jails, which is the same today. You know, if, if everyone was born again, if everybody in the UK was born again, or in your country, you wouldn't need a police service, would you? But here, these godly Jewish apostles have been arrested by the Jewish leaders, which for me is a picture of treason, and they're going to be detained in a prison. It could be in a temple, it could be in a... A Roman jail, I'm not quite sure, but what I really get from these verses is persecution. You can't avoid it. Verse 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. At last, Pentecost, part 2 has now occurred, but on this occasion there's not going to be any signs and wonders, just around 5,000 men believing. It's quite possible that there are women and children present as well. But look at verse 4 again. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can spiritualize this piece of scripture and uh, teach it to be applicable today. You got saved by hearing the word of God. And these people or this group of people heard the word via the apostles of course and believed. The just shall live by faith. Salvation is a free gift. And the number of the men was about around estimated to be 5,000. Dr. Luke's very careful not to be too dogmatic. He told you in chapter 2 that around 3,000 souls believed and were saved. Verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. This is a family dynasty if ever I saw one. And I'm not against family dynasties in the word of God. We know back in the Old Testament that Aaron was called to be the high priest along with at least three of his sons, I believe. But this group of people are more interested in money and wealth and prestige. They've grown accustomed to having the people almost worship them. Much like you see in the Catholic Church today. And you've got Caiaphas and John. And I think back in the Gospel of John, it says that there were two high priests. Which suggests to me that one had retired and the other taken over. So I think Caiaphas was the son-in-law to John, if I remember correctly, the correct genealogy or genealogy. And you've got Alexander and Annas, so probably two sons of Caiaphas, along with the stepfather, who were pretty much calling the shots. And as many as were the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. The context is still at Jerusalem. The context is still very much in reference to Israel. Nobody else is going to get a look in. There are no Gentiles present yet. As I say, Peter is still preaching the Mode of salvation that you found in Matthew chapter 3 in reference to John the Baptist. 
And it's also interesting to me that the Lord didn't choose anybody from organized religion to proclaim his son's arrival. He chose a man in the desert known as John the Baptist, which suggests to me that the new covenant is going to be very different to the old covenant, which suggests to me that we're not only going to be priests, all of us are going to be priests in the new covenant. There's no priest system in the new covenant, but that the Lord has turned from organized religion to working at a much uh, lower rate on a one-to-one scale. And that's why there's no temple today. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But let's move on, please. Verse 7. But when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, where do you get your authority from? Who do you people think you are? You're not from Cambridge or Oxford or Eton or Harrow or Yale or Harvard. You're not uh, one of the elite. You didn't go to Jerusalem High. You're not something special. Who do you people think you are? It must have really grated with this group of people, found in verse 1 and verse 6, to have two commercial lower middle class fishermen preaching in the Jewish temple, which was the centre of the world for the Jewish people, about the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish carpenter, the Jewish son of God, which, as far as the organised religion crowd were concerned, had nothing to do with them. That's why they say, where do you get your authority from, or who is this person that you are preaching about? And also, by what name or what power goes back to chapter 2, to be baptised in the name? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet go back to Psalm 138, I believe it is, where it says that God has put his word above his name. So that's a very interesting situation to inspect. His word, being the Bible, is above his name, being Jesus Christ, the new covenant. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And yet you were shown in John chapter 5, in my last uh, message, that in the last day God is going to judge us by his word. So you've got the living word and the written word. And sometimes you can't tell them apart. That's why you were told to study, to show yourself approved unto God. And that's why you were told that the word of God cannot be broken. The word of God is inspired and it is preserved. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people... And elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole, whom ye crucified, the people of Israel, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead. It goes back to chapter 2, acknowledge that you've crucified the Messiah, chapter 3, except you're responsible for the Messiah's death. It's almost a two-fold, two-stage plan of salvation. Except you've done wrong, except he's your Messiah, except you've crucified him, and then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can't miss it. This good deed, in reference to the impotent man, this cripple, who has now been made whole, seen before your very eyes, and yet this man, as I say, and I said it last time, I'll say it again today, as far as I can tell, didn't go on to get saved, which is incredible. He's healed, but he wasn't saved. It's almost a mystery, and perhaps organized religion, once again, has got into, uh, has come into the uh, equation here. Perhaps they've thwarted it. I don't know. Maybe this beggar outside of the temple was fearful of the priests and the captain of the guard, verse 1, and the Sadducees, that group of scholars. I don't know, but 
Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, inspiration. He's now speaking to the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He says, you rulers of the people, or ye rulers, plural, of the people, and elders of Israel. He's now focusing on the leaders. Last time he was focusing on the individuals. Now he's going to focus on the leaders. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, healed without exception, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you hold. He's preaching with boldness. There's no tongues here whatsoever. He's declaring before the Jewish elite. He's declaring before the priest class of Jerusalem that a great miracle has taken place right under the noses, and yet nothing comes from it. Their hearts were hard. They wouldn't receive it. They were at enmity with God. They had chosen to worship the God of this world, lowercase g. And this goes back to the problem that Israel, to this present, is still in unbelief. Let's move on, please. Verse 11. This is a stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. This is the stone, this is the rock, this is the foundation, which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. In other words, Christ completes the, the corner. He completes the foundation. If you go back to the Old Testament, Starting with, I think it is Jacob, on his roots, on his journey through life, he lays stones as he travels uh, to meet the angel of the Lord. And those stones, those rocks, those pebbles, picture the literal temple, which of course uh, Solomon would build. And in the New Testament, we are built upon the rock, the stone being Christ Jesus. Also for Matthew 16, the Lord said to uh, Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock... Will I build my church? Now, of course, Peter's not the rock, but he was a stone, a small pebble, which means that the church is built on the apostles and foundation, picturing stones and pebbles. But Christ Jesus is the ultimate stone. He's the ultimate rock. Verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's new. That's new. Peter didn't preach that. John the Baptist didn't preach that. Paul would preach that. And the Lord Jesus Christ told you in John 14 how he was the way, the truth, and the life. But here, this could be progressive revelation. And he says, neither is there salvation in any other. Out goes Mary, out goes the Mass, out goes Muhammad. For there is none other name under heaven given among men and women whereby we must be saved. To be born again, you've got to come to the cross. You've got to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to trust in him. And on him in order to be saved. The just shall live by faith. And here Peter's moving on I think from the formula of John the Baptist. To the gospel of the grace of God. Which Paul is going to perfect. And uh, as you read through Acts of the Apostles. You discover that they are growing in grace. As I am growing in grace. As you are growing in grace. And Peter is growing in the knowledge of God. There's no infallibility here. Peter was... No different to you or I. He's still very much waiting for further light from the Holy Spirit, further revelation from the Holy Spirit. But we know that once the word of God was written and circulated, then we have the complete truth of God. But he's saying to the Jewish leaders, you need to repent, in essence. You need to come to the Messiah to be saved. You need to turn from the old covenant to the new covenant and be saved. It's going to cost you something. I won't pretend it won't. He's almost saying to them, but you've got to turn to him because there's no more sacrifice for sin. He's it. 
He's the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And without him you're lost, and without him you're going to go to hell and die. And you're going to burn forever. That's the sort of boldness that you need. We need that sort of boldness today. Don't shy away from telling people they're going to burn in hell forever. Be honest with people. And my experience has shown me that when I'm honest with people, or when we are honest with people, Patrick and I, people appreciate it. They may not believe it. They may not receive the message, but they appreciate you being honest uh, towards them. Look at verse 13, please. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Unlearned, ignorant, everyday people, not from the class of scholars, not privately educated, but they've been with Jesus. That's a profound statement. If you're born again, if you stand in your streets, or if you stand in the street in your town, if you go into your communities for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have a good prayer life, if you are a faithful Bible believer, people will know that you are different, and they will know that you've been with Jesus. But I like from verse 13, the boldness. They saw the boldness from Peter and John. They're still working in pairs. There's no Pope Peter here. There's no Saint John the Divine here. They're just working in pairs. Unlearned and ignorant men, hardly it was the Jewish leaders who were ignorant and unlearned men. And later on it says, you brought this man's blood upon us. Well, go back to Matthew 27. What did you people say? Let his blood be on us and on our children. This is tragic because it shows me once again that you can be on the wrong side of history. These Jewish leaders were scholars. They were the best of the best. They'd been in Israel for probably all their life. They'd been in Jerusalem certainly all their life. And yet they couldn't see the truth of the Messiah. Their forefathers persecuted the Old Testament prophets, which was a rejection of God the Father, and now they are going to reject God the Son in the New Covenant. That's a perpetual conspiracy almost to overthrow the witness of Christ, to reject the New Covenant, and to this day they still reject the New Covenant for the most part. In fact, if you sit down with an Orthodox Jew, an honest Orthodox Jew, they will tell you that if you are a Gentile, you are an unclean animal. And yet, regardless of all of that, you were told to pray for them. You were told to witness to them. Verse 14. And behold, the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They must have seen this man outside of their temple every day. They probably stepped over him every day to go into the temple, to offer sacrifices to the God which they claimed to believe in. And that God, of course, was Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ in the present tense. He's always been God. And yet... They saw this man healed, but they would say nothing against it because they wouldn't believe it. Their hearts were dead. And that goes back to your pre-salvation days. Before you were saved, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Calvinists say, there you are, you see, total inability or total depravity. Well, let me say this very briefly, that it's true that before you were saved, you were dead in your sins. But you weren't totally without knowledge of right from wrong. You had a Knowledge of the Lord, your conscience pointed you to the Lord, and that's why Paul told you in Romans chapter 1 how mankind knows that God is God, but mankind, pre the new birth, buries what he knows to be of God in unrighteousness. What did the Lord say in John chapter 3? How men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because the deeds were evil. But the tragedy here, as I say, is this early church filled with the Holy Spirit, boldness, love of the Lord, miracles left, right, and center, preaching directly to the religious elite and the people as well and yet one last time from verse 14 and behold the man which was healed standing with them 
they could say nothing against it. They wouldn't believe it because they didn't want to be identified with the Jewish carpenter. They did not want to be identified with this group of lower middle class commercial fishermen who hadn't been educated in Jerusalem High or Yale or Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or Eton or Harrow or the private schools, the great academic institutions around the world. They must have been infuriated that the Lord had chosen just commercial fishermen to declare his son and the new covenants. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Council, verse 15, is evil. Councils in the word of God are evil. If you go back to John 11, it speaks about the Jews taking a council, calling a council to decide what to do about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no councils in the New Covenant. A council pictures, for me anyway, organised religion, which I have no time for. In fact, I spoke to someone just this week about organised religion. And I may have time to share that later, or maybe next Sunday, I don't know. But he thought that because I was a Christian, I was responsible for organised religion. He thought I was responsible for the Spanish Inquisition and uh, all of the other horrors around the world over the last uh, several hundred years. I said, no, I'm a Christian, not a Catholic. There's a difference. But here, they're going to hold a council and deal with uh, this problem, as they would see it, of Christianity growing and this potential threat to the Jewish system being the old covenant. But once God has started a work, you cannot overthrow it. And that's a pretty horrifying thought to even attempt to stand against God to overthrow it. Verse 17. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. To stop it spreading any further, let us straightly threaten them, perhaps with threats of violence, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. That name Jesus, there's something about that name Jesus which, which mankind doesn't like. If you travel around your community preaching Jesus, speaking about Jesus, people don't like it, they feel uncomfortable. There's something about Jesus which makes them feel uncertain about themselves, unsure of themselves. There's power in the name of Jesus, and yet if you sit down and talk to someone about Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, the Pope, Mary, uh, your president, your prime minister, your king, your queen, your guru, whoever, whatever. There's no controversy, there's no uneasiness. But when you speak about Jesus Christ, or if you get your Bible out and put it down on a coffee table, or in a library, or on your travels, people don't like it. It grates. and I go, It goes back to John chapter 1, how Christ is in every man, or how Christ lights every man that comes into the world, which goes back to my understanding anyway, that mankind has universally been given the opportunity to be saved. Mankind has the seal of God. Mankind is born with the knowledge of God, Romans chapter 1 again, but he doesn't want God. He hates God. It goes back to a heart problem, you see. Man's heart is desperately wicked. His head knows that God is God, but his heart hates him. His heart doesn't want to bow down to him, his heart wants to do its own thing. That's why you need to be born again and get a new heart. On top of that, people think, well, you know, if I, you know, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to do things that I want to do and I'm going to have to give up things that I love doing. Let me say this to you. When you become a Christian, God gives you a new heart. What you used to love doing, you now hate doing. And what you used to hate doing, you now love doing. It is a paradox, but it pictures very clearly the new birth. Also from 18... 
And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. That's still the same for today. Organised religion doesn't like Jesus. That's why the ecumenical movement has been so successful, because they've been able to erase the name of Jesus. I mean, he's still there, of course he's still there, but not in public. You won't get an ecumenical prayer movement coming together, all holding hands and saying, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. They won't do it, because the name of Jesus is divisive. And yet, one last time, from Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Judgment seat for the saved, the great white throne for the unsaved, even the devil will bow his knee to Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet the flip side to that, Psalm 138, how God has put his word above all that his name is. These are very important verses that people need to understand and meditate on for as long as they possibly can. 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and render to God the things which are God's. This is a profound statement, and if you get a chance, please read Romans 13, 1 to 5. The powers that be are ordained of God. Secular, on the one hand, and even religious to some extent. And that's why you discover later on in the book of Acts, when the high priest slaps Paul across the face. Paul quotes the Old Testament scripture, which made it very clear that you're not to speak evil of the religious leaders appointed by God and yet it gets slightly problematic when you look at the so-called Christian leaders in the world today the so-called Pope of Rome the so-called Archbishop of Canterbury or the Patriarch in Russia Iraq Greece so on so forth but sticking with the context the powers that be are ordained of God and we'll just leave that in reference to the secular powers and again it's Peter and John 19 working as a pair it's Peter and John making it very clear that God is in charge and yet if we are expected to compromise our beliefs and follow the word of man there's going to be great judgment which is going to fall upon us verse 20 and i'll close here for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard we the apostles we can't restrain we can't refrain we can't forbear we can't hold back speaking about the things which we have seen and heard because we are the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, it's quite possible that the 70 are also active around this time. And it's quite possible that the women and Mary and the Lord's brethren were also quite active around the same time as well. But it's Peter and John for the first, I think, 10 chapters. And then it's almost like a tag team from chapter 10 onwards. Paul comes along and takes over. Of course, Paul was called in Acts 9 but by Acts 10 onwards, Paul takes a driving seat. So take these verses, put them all together, preach the gospel, whatever the cost. Salvation will come, on this occasion, 5,000, regardless of organised religion. And if you stand for Lord Jesus Christ, the world, the flesh and the devil will come at you. But behind that, and on top of that, and including that, I will say, is organised religion. They hated Christ. It was the organised religion that put him on the cross. It was the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees that conspired with the Gentiles to put him to death. And here you find the same thing occurring again. Organised religion working against Peter and John. And yet salvation still comes to around 5,000 men. Incredible. But boldness was the key. They got it left, right and centre. And that's what we need today. Boldness to preach the gospel. Boldness to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And boldness, if necessary, to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll stop there in verse 20. Next time we will continue from Acts 4 
verse 21.